Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we meet a restaurateur who has found success not in one but two major metropolises in Asia, in Singapore and Hong Kong. The backbone of what we do and the DNA of what we do here is French and remain French in terms of essence and technique. But the food here, it's infused with a lot of Asian zest, I would say. Then Paul Hollywood of the great British Bake of Fame shares some of his own favorite recipes. The recipes are pretty straightforward and they were very popular anyway. So it's just my take on them and my little twist. But I wanted to be approachable. That was the point of the book, a classic book that people use. All that, the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. First today we meet Julien Royer, who is one of Asia's best-known restaurateurs, being the chef and owner of Louise in Hong Kong and three-star Michelin restaurant Odette in Singapore. His latest venture launched late last year when he opened Claudine, a French bistro located in an old chapel in Singapore. Monaco's Naomi Chu Elegant sat down with Julien to hear more about his restaurant philosophy and concepts and how his background has influenced his menus. I went into cooking because of my grandmother mainly. That's why the name of the restaurant here is Odette. That's the name of my uh, grandma from my mom's side. She's the person and the lady that show me how much pleasure, how much emotion and how much happiness you can give to people through food and through cooking. You know, it's really by starting baking home with my grandma that I really take pleasure on cooking and baking and doing stuff with my hands. And therefore, I go into hospitality school. My background is pretty much hospitality school followed by a couple of places with Michelin stars in France. But not only fine dining, also like traditional restaurants, hotels, and small restaurants, regional restaurants from my region of Auvergne. Before I start traveling around the world, I would say a little bit. And then I arrived in Singapore in 2008. I was supposed to be here for two years. And, you know, I stayed longer than that. <laughs> And uh, we opened this restaurant here in 2015. And last year in November, we opened our third concept called Claudine in Dempsey. So can you tell me a bit about the new restaurant Claudine? I think Claudine fill a gap in the market between your everyday kind of French bistro and your already high-hand and fine-handing restaurant. It is a place that you can find some traditional and regional recipes some traditional French recipes such as uh, Volovent or Steak Tartare or Bouillabaisse and some more traditional to my hometown, for example, like a Chou Farsi or Truffade, which is typically from Auvergne, where I come from. And the concept is really built around this idea of conviviality and joie de vivre and partage and sharing. So we want people to come and we want people to enjoy great food, à la carte, flexibility, It's simple, but I think it was lacking right here in Singapore where we can find great food that is still simple in terms of recipes, but with a great, great, great focus on sourcing and cooking precision. So for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Odette, where we're sitting right now, could you describe a bit what that restaurant is like and why you decided to open Claudine and how they're different? Both concepts are very different. Odette is a fine dining restaurant where we serve testing menu only when we focus on, I would say, a French cuisine that has evolved a lot with time. 
I've been in Asia for a long time. So the backbone of what we do and the DNA of what we do here is French and remain French in terms of essence and technique. But the food here, it's infused with a lot of Asian zest, I would say. Produce, technique, ingredients, or just flavor. One dish that represents well the DNA of Odette is the Kampot pepper crusted pigeon that we do here. This is a dish that embodies exactly what I said, the DNA of the French cooking, because we source a great quality ingredients from Fabien Desnoeurs in Brittany. is a very particular type of pigeon that we cook very classically on the crown. It's roasted, it's finished into a pot with brown butter, like a foamy butter with thyme and garlic. And we season the end of the cooking with fresh green peppercorn from Kempot. And we crust then the pigeon breast with a peppercorn crust. Right now it's the season of the Kempot pepper. So from, let's say, end of May till beginning of July, it's where they harvest the pepper, the fresh green pepper. During that period, we do a big batch of that where we do a crust mixing green peppercorn, so fresh peppercorn with black peppercorn and a red peppercorn. All coming from the same tree. It's all the same plant. It's just different stages of their maturity. And then we do a ratio with peppercorn that is going to bring the nice peppery taste into the pigeon, but we don't want the spice to overpower the meat and to take over the meat. We want always the product to be forward and to be upfront of what the guest is going to eat here. So you have the pigeon that is extremely tender. We serve it very pink to have maximum juiciness and maximum tenderness into the meat. And we have the nice layer of spice, but it's quite elegant because of the mix that we have done that bring a bit of heat and bring a bit of sense of place as well. So that's a good example, for example, of a dish that make a toast to what I just described. And for Claudine, if you take, for example, the recipe of chou farci, which is literally mean stuffed cabbage, this is a dish from my hometown of Cantal in Auvergne. It's a dish that my mom do for me each time I go back home. And it's a dish that I feel very quite emotional with it because... It's really flavor that I grew up with. It's a very simple dish of cabbage and pork. Just layered cabbage, pork, cabbage, pork, cabbage, pork that is baked. This one, we bring a little touch of luxury by adding a slice of foie gras. My mom normally don't put foie gras. She says it's too expensive. <laughs> but yeah, that's you know, the example of what we cook. Could you tell me a bit more about your upbringing in France and what your favorite things were to eat as a child? My family has a small farm and you know we always eat very well back home. Because we have a big garden and because my family, you know, I was very lucky, but I realized after a while that we really embodies and live with nature and cook only what we have in the garden. I have no much memories as a kid to go often in the supermarket, for example. We really cooked, preserve, bake and do our own charcuterie, bread and stuff. But since the beginning, so for me, it was something normal. When I grew up and when I see people eating and I see some of my friends the way they eat, it was totally different. So I realized after that I was very lucky to be exposed to this kind of environment where we didn't have much money, but we have always eaten very well because of the huge garden we have, because of the fact that my parents farm. We have different kind of poultries. We have different kind of chicken, guinea fowl. We even have a rabbit that we cook because it's traditional from my hometown. We have uh, the celebration of the pork. Every year we have a pork that we are going to kill and we are going to make blood sausage, pork chop, pork loin, charcuterie, saucisson, jambon and stuff like that. So this is something very typical from our region. So that's the way I grew up eating. 
and following, of course, the tempo of the season. While you know the specificity of our region is that we have very distinctive season. The winter are very cold and we have a lot of snow. The autumn are very wet, usually a lot of rain, but plenty of mushroom all around because we have a lot of forest. And then the summer are really hot. But you know the fact that just having a big garden and that when you pick a tomato from your garden and that tomato never go into the fridge, you know. The veg, we harvest, we put in a wooden trays and they stay outside or they stay in a cold place, but they never go into the fridge. And that is already a, a huge change when you pick a strawberry or tomato or carrot that you are going to cook straight away. When the time between the soil and the pan and your plate and your tummy is reduced to the maximum, it's something that is quite uncomparable to what you can have in big cities, for example. What was it like to move from that kind of environment to Singapore where all the food is imported? That's a very good question. It's a shock at first. It's a very, very challenging position where you are actually in the exact opposite position of what you know and what you are grown up with. But, you know, you have to accept the challenge and transform this challenge into opportunity because we are in Singapore, as we know, nearly, I think, 90% of the food that is consumed in this country is imported. However you can have access to anything from anywhere. And in terms of quality, it's always fantastic because the logistic is so good. So really, you know, even when I cook with some French chef that I invite from France, for example, or from Europe, they are amazed by the quality of ingredients you can get. And I think you live in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is pretty much similar with, you cannot get much thing in Hong Kong, but what you can get from anywhere in the world, it's just premium and amazing quality. So it's a bit of a paradox, but I think it's important for us as a chef to really, you know, take this challenge, understand the way it works, make it an opportunity. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's amazing to have the world as our market and we can play with as much different product as we want. But I think also what's important is to, when you have a local ingredients or local product or local farm that do a great job, it's our role and our responsibility to support them as much as we can. Julian Royer there in discussion with Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant. <music> Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Sophie Monahan Coombs. 15 McDonald's restaurants in Russia have reopened under a new name and new ownership. Favourites like chicken nuggets and fries are still on the menu at Vizkuna i Tochka, which means tasty and that's it. McDonald's left the country and was bought by a local businessman after the invasion of Ukraine. Pakistanis have been asked by their government to drink less tea in a bid to cut high import costs. Pakistan is the world's largest tea importer and most people drink an average of three cups a day. But an economic crisis in the country has Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif looking to save some of the $600 million spent on importing tea each year. On Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Emma Nelson spoke to British-Pakistani journalist Samira Shackle. The new government issued some pretty strange uh, suggestions for people to reduce the demands uh, on imports and, and energy to reduce tea. I think any visitor to Pakistan would know um, people really do drink a lot of tea. Uh, you can't go to someone's house or work appointment or whatever it is without being offered a cup of very sugary, very milky, very delicious tea. Uh, so it's quite sort of integral to people's day-to-day lives, I think. But on you know, on a more serious note, this has been quite widely mocked on social media, but there is a, a terrible crisis of 
imports of energy. I mean, people in Pakistan are really used to blackouts called load shedding, as it is in many countries. It's sort of planned rolling blackouts where you might have power on on for two hours, off for an hour, etc. But, you know, that's getting much, much, much worse. You've got places that are without power for 12 hours a day. And in a country where people routinely die in heat waves pretty much every year, that's no laughing matter as we approach the summer months. Sales of low and no alcohol beers have nearly doubled in five years in the UK. Sales topped £360 million last year, up from less than £200 million in 2016. The boom was helped by the launch of alcohol-free options by global brands like Heineken and Budweiser. And finally, the first space grapes have appeared on vines that spent more than a year on the International Space Station. The Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon plants were blasted into space in 2020 as part of a research project by the startup Space Cargo Unlimited. The first harvest and space wines are expected next year. Thanks, Sophie. You are with the menu on Monocle 24. We've nearly all got a favourite family recipe or a memory of baking, whether it's our grandma's shortbread biscuits or visiting our local bakery on the way home from school. Great British Bake Off star Paul Hollywood has brought some of his own baking nostalgia to his new book, Bake. It compiles all his best recipes for the classics, perfected over decades working with bread, biscuits and cakes. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Paul about how he got started, the Bake Off's global success and why you should probably clean your oven. Lillian began by asking what the process was for developing his new book, Bake. The process to develop it's been going on for many years. I've written a, a few books in the past and I think I wanted to revisit some of them and then look at some of the classics which I was particularly fond of with a bit of a twist. I mean, obviously, being a judge on The Great British Bake Off, I've been privy to some great ideas, some new interesting flavours, some not so interesting. But ultimately, it's been in the making for some years. So during lockdown bake-off last year and the year before, I started writing notes down of the classics, my favourites and how it's changed over the years. Less sugar, less salt. Techniques remain roughly the same. But I ended up dropping down my favourite ones and then adding ones that I'd come across on bake-off as well. So... The book started coming together and after I'd finished Bake Off in the tent, filming in the tent, I went back to my room and I started scribbling it down. It started formulating almost immediately. And so although it's classics, it's the classics that have been around for some time, like Lemon Drizzle, Victoria Sandwich, you know, the sausage roll. But also it was with my little twist on it, which made it a little bit more fun. And how did you decide what recipes to include? Oh, it's indulgent, what I like. I like to think that, you know, the ones I have picked are pretty common. The likes of the sausage roll and a donut are pretty common and pizza. So the recipes are pretty straightforward and I know are very popular anyway. So it's just my take on them and my little twist. But I want it to be approachable. That was the point of the book, a classic book that people use. One of the only baking books that you'll ever need. And it covers from experienced bakers down to, you know, people are just starting or getting into baking. Many of them are really classic recipes like Victoria Sponge or, like you mentioned, a lemon drizzle. What's the key to making those classic and often quite simple recipes really stand out and really amazing? Is it the particular ingredients or a really specific method? Good ingredients, anything good going in, you're going to get something good out of it. One of the key things is 
when you're baking, it's more of a science baking. So it's the relationship between the rising agent with the alkali, with the flour. If you measure that up correctly, you're halfway there, over halfway there. So it's getting good, accurate scales and getting that ready and prepared. Making sure your oven is clean is also an essential part because it's amazing how many people don't clean the inside of their ovens and their ovens don't actually achieve what temperature it says it's achieving. And this makes a difference when you're baking because it's all to do with the heat, how it caramelizes, how it grows, and then you come up with an amazing bake. So weighing up correctly, following a good recipe and making sure your oven's clean, you're going to be on for a good bake straight off. Some of these recipes are more personal to you. Are there any particular favourites or ones that hold really special sentimental value for you? I mean, things like the apple pie, my mum's apple pie, ginger biscuits was awesome, my mum's sausage roll was something my dad was very good at. Sourdough is something I enjoy making at home, but also things like the apricot Danish pastries, because that is something I used to make a lot of when I was working the likes of the Dorchester and Clifton and Chester Grosvenor. And I used to make hundreds and hundreds of them every day. So these things become second nature. What's often difficult is when you're taking a recipe for 20 kilos of flour and 30 kilos of this, you have to move that into a a usable recipe at home because if you're going to make 20 kilos of flour at home, you're going to be in a world of trouble. So it's a case of reducing that recipe down and making sure it works at home. You mentioned your parents as well. I understand that you got into baking through them, especially your father who owned a bakery. Was it clear from a young age that you would become a baker and that's what you wanted to do? And how did you start to realise that this is what you wanted to pursue as a career? I think growing up and living in and around bakeries for most of my life, I got used to the smell of bread and cakes and all this sort of stuff. So it wasn't unusual for me to go into the trade from that point of view. However, when I left school, I did actually go to art school. So from art school, I mean, it was in the 80s when... It was difficult. We needed a trade. You know, if you had a trade, at least you were earning money. So the 80s was tough. And I think ultimately everyone needed to get a job because unemployment was huge. But my dad always said, if you had a trade, you're going to be okay. So I ended up leaving art school, joining my dad's business, learning from his bakers. And then I realized within six months that I was all right. I had a natural aptitude for baking. And the hardest part was getting out of bed in the morning. That was by far and away the hardest thing to get used to but I did get used to it and even now I end up waking up early I think it's in my blood now but it's part of the punishment for being a baker. You then obviously ended up on the Great British Bake Off which is famous the world over now. How much has baking changed since Bake Off started and what kind of influence has Bake Off had on baking in the UK and even in the world? It's difficult to quantify what Bake Off has done you know, moving forward, I think it's probably got the kids interested in baking, which is a good thing because then they're more interested in how things are made and more importantly, what goes into a recipe. So I think globally, I didn't, we didn't realise how big Bake Off was going to get. And it is this global thing. There are a lot of franchises. There are an Italian Bake Off. There's a Peruvian Bake Off. There's a Brazilian one. There's a Norwegian, a Danish, and an Israeli, an Australian, and New Zealand. I think there's just so many of them. And it's funny because... The people that represent Prue and I in the ones abroad, a lot of the lads do have beards, which is that a coincidence? (laughs) I'm not sure. I do the American one as well, which is fascinating. I found the baking there slightly different, a little bit sweeter than it is over in the UK. But I think ultimately baking, I think the British have always been very good at baking anyway. 
I think it's in the DNA of the Brits. They do actually make some fantastic cakes and breads. The French are often known for their breads as well, as are the Italians. But I think the Brits have always been good. I always remember, you know, when I was a kid, my nan, we used to go to the church and have these fates and everyone would bring in a cake. And the cakes were amazing from the brownies to the Victoria sandwiches, the lemon drizzles. They were just, they were stunning cakes. So it's like everybody had a family bake. And I think that's carried on. I think what Bake Off has done is harness that and put it into a tent, gave us a little bit of bunting and made it very, well, British. One really iconic bit of Great British Bake Off is, of course, the poor Hollywood handshake. You mentioned in the book that you've tried probably thousands of cakes and biscuits and pies in your Mm. time. What does it take to get the famous handshake? To get the handshake for me, it's crossing the border because these bakers are all amateurs to start with. So for me to give it a handshake, it tends to be when I recognise a professionalism in their baking something that really crosses that line into professional looking, something that's quite commercial, something that's very consistent, something that sometimes is unique and something that's actually baked to perfection. So you'll get a handshake based on those criteria. And I think, you know, over the years, I've given out a few handshakes and there's other years where I've not given out as many. It's difficult sometimes. When I give out a handshake, sometimes there's a round of applause and a tent from everybody else. And that, I mean, it doesn't upset me. But that's not what its meaning was all about. For me, it was about saying, well done. You know, I think you've done an amazing job with that. And that was it. And I remember doing it a couple of times in the American Bake Off and it was like, whoop, whoop, and the clapping and it went on for ages. And I said, this is embarrassing. This is... This is really embarrassing. I didn't, I almost dressed the sense about giving another handshake out. It was literally just a well done, you know, sort of pat on the back of the hand and congratulations, that's a great bake. But that was all its intention. It's just taken off into such a way. I think Blake Lively, Ryan Reynolds' wife, produced a cake on Instagram and she said in a note on Instagram, I hope I get a Hollywood handshake. And so someone pointed it out to me and I sent an emoji of a Hollywood handshake to her and then she repeated it and repeated it and repeated it on her Instagram. I thought, wow, (laughs) even an emoji does it now. It's really gone global. Yeah. As you say, all the bakers on Bake Off are amateurs, but they're also very experienced bakers. And, you know, reading your book, you can see that you're trying to introduce recipes to people who might not have tried baking before and encouraging them to start with something really simple like the Victoria sponge. What's a common mistake that new bakers often make that you've seen? I think not weighing up correctly. And often, you know, sometimes when these guys are in a tent and they're baking, they're concentrating on what they're doing and they haven't got any outside influences like the phone going or the doorbell going or the kids running around. And sometimes... When that happens and you're mid weighing up, you can miss out on ingredients. And that's the biggest mistake everybody makes. And I think ultimately that couple of minutes of weighing up is critical for baking. So if you spend a bit of time, put them in little containers, you know, they're all there and then tick them off as you're doing it. And you know, you've got all the ingredients in and that's most of the work done. As long as you've weighed up accurately with good digital scales, then you're, you know, most of the way there from creating something that's going to taste amazing. And just a final thought, during lockdown, we saw lots of people take a new interest in baking and obviously lots of people have been baking, celebrating the Jubilee. What is it about baking that's so nostalgic and so comforting, especially for a lot of people in the UK? It's something you grow up with. I think it's whether it's your grandma, your grandpa, 
your mum, your dad, your aunties, your uncles, when everyone used to get together, someone baked something and it's something that takes you back to when you're a kid. Banana bread was always a favourite, certainly during lockdown. So I made a couple of banana breads and started putting a couple of recipes out there. And, and then I realised how many people, it was trending, I think, that everyone was making banana bread during lockdown. And I made it for a couple of people in the village and I sort of made a couple of loaves because I like to make sure my bananas have gone really off and they're black because that makes the best banana bread. And the same when I was baking sourdough, I remember making a couple of extra loaves because I had some left over and giving them out as well. But I think ultimately... It's a very nostalgic thing, baking, and it's a very ancient tradition in the UK, especially, which is where some of these recipes actually came from. And I love seeing other people's interpretation of it, and I think it's been around for many, many years. And hopefully, with the likes of Bake Off, people pick up on it and adjust it, change it, make it their own, and make it their own family tradition. And that's what the point of the book is all about, to get people baking and actually to get people making it their own family favourite when they get together. Paul Hollywood there in discussion with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett and Paul's new book Bake is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbours for great recipes. And obviously you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again we finish this program with a dinner sound track recommendation here is baby cakes by three of a kind thanks for listening Because I'm not something you own. Oh.